You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to the Conservative Conscience here at Conservative Review's Northern Command in Maryland on the Westwood One Podcast Network. It is Friday. Yes, you are hearing from me for the fourth time this week. Thank God we've had the time to put out a fourth episode this week. Uh, call it Foreign Policy Friday. We, we spoke so much about domestic policy. I really wanted to get to foreign policy this week. And uh, yeah, it is Friday, late April, April 20th, but it feels like it's early March because of, you know, global warming. But uh, so I don't strangle myself and break things because I am just in a really bad way. And I know those of you who follow me on Twitter recognize that because. The courts have accomplished more in the last 48 hours since Congress, by the way, went on vacation uh, mid-Wednesday. They accomplished more for the left in those 48 hours than we've accomplished for the right by having Republicans control Congress uh, since 1995. Um, The stuff they're doing is insane. Insane. And a lot of it does tie into Gorsuch's – I mean Gorsuch's uh, opinion creating constitutionally mandated – plus extra due process rights against deportation for foreign nationals, including illegal immigrants, by the way, even though the case itself he was dealing with was a legal immigrant. Um, Lots of things going on, sanctuary city courts, um, all all sorts of abortion cases, everything. The courts are on a rampage. Every five seconds, I get an email alert from law360.com. It's one of the websites I subscribe to, and I see just another civilization killer from the courts. And I'm the only one talking about it because you know we could talk about Diamond and Silk and Facebook and Comey and Stormy Daniels and whatever. Um, and obviously, we have no vision from a conservative movement on any issue, but nowhere is this more evident than with foreign policy. Where you have no vision, you get false dichotomies. Well, I'm not him. He's an isolationist. He's an interventionist. Where you're not affirmatively expressing a view that makes sense in each theater and then putting together a broad strategy that works harmoniously together in all the theaters, defining our strategic interests, strategic threats, risk versus return matrix, cost-benefit analysis, you know, like any anyone would do in the private sector, but we don't do when we are dealing with thousands of lives, trillions of dollars spent, No, nothing. And then, of course, we don't use our military for Mexico, which, by the way, I have a piece coming out today on how sanctuary cities, the magnet of catch and release, the judicial amnesty made worse by Gorsuch, all that put together is empowering the drug cartels by creating this market for all these Central Americans to come and they sneak in their drugs, MS-13 gang members, and Middle Easterners, and we will not use our military to go after the drug cartels, but we have to play around in the Middle East, do the exact opposite things. Today, I want to talk about just how backwards, how masochist, how self-immolating, self-defeating our foreign policy is. Everything we should be doing, we don't do. What we shouldn't do, we do um, in each given theater, and I want to really 
packed this with substance today. So again, so I don't strangle myself and start breaking things. I'm going to bring on my colleague as a co-host. Earlier this week, we had on Nate Mann, and I want you guys to hear, by the way, from some of the young up-and-coming talent that you don't see on the poor news circle uh, and, and the, you know, the razzle-dazzle cable channels, but nonetheless, they know more than what you're going to hear there. One of them is Jordan Schachtel. He's our foreign policy correspondent, national security, uh, military, you name it. Uh, he's the guy I usually, very calm demeanor, I usually call him up and just rant because I'm so ticked off. So I figured I'm just going to bring him on and rant. Hey, Jordan, are you on the line? I'm here, Daniel. It's good to be with you. Yeah, you know, you do have this calm demeanor about you that kind of, you know, chills things down a little bit with me. Um, why don't I start with, I don't know where where, where we start from. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, national security starts with homeland security. So, you know, I find it interesting that there is no effort in the foreign policy circles to deal with Mexico. Just a quick question before we get to Syria. In your travels in foreign policy, defense-oriented, conservative intelligentsia, have you ever heard Mexico brought up in the context of statecraft, military operations, and security threats? It's it's really unfortunate, you know, because you see all these. There's so many think tanks in Washington dealing with every single particular foreign policy issue. Um, everything that's 20,000 miles away. But you're right. The southern border is not looked at as a foreign policy issue whatsoever. It's looked at as, you know, an immigration crisis. Uh, you know, how high are we going to build the wall? But no one really talks about how we can improve relations with Mexico or how we can hold Mexico accountable for the cartels that are sweeping up, um, you know, areas of southern Texas and then northern Mexico and, you know, how we can kind of engage in diplomacy with Mexico or, or put some sanctions even on the country. And, you know, these possibilities haven't even been explored because people don't view the Mexico relationship really through a foreign policy prism. It's all about the dreamers, all about, um, you know, the benefits that the dreamers are going to get. No one really thinks about how we can stop this issue from occurring in the first place. And I, I agree that we need to devote serious resources towards studying this issue and creating, you know, effective policy recommendations for the White House through this new lens. And I think it'll really help with, you know, everything that I was discussing with when it comes to border security, when it comes to, you know, protecting the homeland. Um, there's a lot of threats present from the southern border, and we need to hold um, the Mexican government accountable for those threats. You, you know what I'm finding, and I write about this today, that in America, we usually view the oceans as keeping us safe from the chaos you're seeing in Europe with just the mass asylum, that we only have a refugee problem where we elect to, in a pretty controlled fashion, select people to bring in. And we have a debate over that, and I have strong opinions about that. But at least we don't have people coming here on their own volition in terms of asylees, aside from the Central American problem, which is huge, and the drug problem, which is huge. But at least we don't have like the Middle Eastern terrorism. But I'm seeing more and more there are now special routes, right? I mean, special smuggling routes where they fly from Greece or Turkey um, to either Brazil or Costa Rica, and um, they pay the drug cartels, and then Hezbollah is involved with narco-terrorism, tremendous amount of money. 
Yeah, the southern border is used as a way to smuggle. Of course, not only you've explored these issues a lot and re- read the reports, and you keep seeing in these DHS reports that aren't really publicized too much that there's a lot of Middle Eastern nationals that somehow make their way across the southern border. So they're not coming. You know, they didn't grow up in Mexico. These people grew up in Iraq, Syria, um, Afghanistan, and they're making their way through a smuggling route, which is maintained through terrorist organizations and drug smuggling cartels. And that, that's the last thing we should be wanting as their status quo. Not only does it present a huge border security threat, but it's a, it's a morality problem that we're allowing for this terror-run smuggling route to um, effectively transmit illegal aliens into the country. Why am I starting off with this? You know, you, Jordan, you know where I'm headed. <laughs> I mean, you know... It, it, see, people look at me like I'm nuts. Well, hey, I thought you wanted to talk about foreign policy. I mean, uh, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. And so, you know, I think the starting point is why we need a robust foreign policy. So uh, the starting point would be, how does someone ever hurt us? So it's hey, – I'm, I'm sorry, are you there? Yeah, go ahead. How, how does someone ever hurt us? I mean, it's one of a couple ways. It's through immigration <laughs> – they make their way to our shores, or they can hit us from afar with an Army, Navy, Air Force, or ICBMs, whether they are conventional or you know packed with nuclear warheads. So that that is basically the the only way they could hurt us is through through that prism. So Mexico is everything. I mean, it's it's the drug cartels. It's it's an ex- existential threat. You know, tens of thousands dropping from the drugs. Obviously, you have the Hezbollah connection, and then you have the smuggling of Middle Easterners. Okay, I get that. So then, that should be the number one thing. Fine. Now let's move on to the Middle East, and and we'll get to North Korea. So the our a hundred percent of our statecraft or remaining statecraft military resources, al- you know, strategic alliances should be geared towards negating that threat. Who has the ability to hit us? And then, you know, afterwards, it's allies. So could we try to shape the Middle East? We have Sunnis, we have Iranian hegemony, and then basically we have a situation where there's 50 Muslim countries, 50 majority Muslim countries. In every Muslim country, you have... A group of people that call themselves Al Qaeda, ISIS, you know, some new thing we never heard of. And we, you know, it, it will be something new down the road. They'll dance around with AK 47s, they'll fight each other, and they don't pose a threat. I wish they didn't exist on the earth, but there's nothing we can do to redress. But then there are areas that do threaten us. How do we disentangle that? Yeah, so. The, the issue right now is that we're fighting wars in the Middle East and, you know, pinpointing particular groups or individuals that we find to be, um, you know, stressing the United States or calling for war against the United States. But we never really make the calculation whether they can actually pose a threat to the homeland. Like if you look at what's going on in Syria right now, we have a strategy that's basically summarized as we're only going after ISIS. It doesn't matter what else is going on. We're focusing on ISIS. We're taking out ISIS. Um, ISIS, of course, emerged mostly in 2014. They swept up a ton of territory. 
then, you know, the Shiite reinforcements came in through Iran and in other places in the U.S. also dedicated its efforts towards defeating ISIS. Um, now, three years later, we have a dwindling ISIS population, but that really hasn't chipped away at the Sunni extremist threat anyway. Yes. So we have to look at, you know, what has this policy really gotten us? Sure, um, there are some Syrians who have been liberated, but now we've empowered, you know, this Shiite extremism, which is a lot, a lot of it, which is state-sponsored and perhaps even more dangerous because Iran, of course, um, has developed sophisticated ballistic missiles and they're working on a nuclear weapons program. So in terms of like the threat to the homeland, we need to look at the broader ideology, um, you know, fight it in the way that we fought the Cold War, you know, how we were targeting communism, where it surfaces and where it grows. And, and that's where, you know, you don't really see that coming from the Pentagon. It, you know, they're just obsessed with ISIS. They see these horrible ISIS videos and then they think, OK, we're going after ISIS. But, but um, now we have the horrible were, Assad videos and Assad's fighting ISIS. Right. So that's why it's so um, perplexing that, you know, we we launch, uh, you know, a few missiles and then we say, OK, you know, back, back to ISIS now. So there really seems to be no grand strategy, um, unfortunately. And, you know, we're just going around playing whack-a-mole continuously. And we've been doing so since um, perhaps, you know, the day after the September 11th attacks. <laughs> we've never really gotten around to... Um, honing in on what is the particular ideology that threatens us. And of course, as you stated earlier, we're importing people that um, also hold these views into the country, and then they're coming through in the southern border, too. So um, we're not doing a good job at fighting this threat at all. And, you know, their numbers will continue to repopulate as long as we stay solely focused on particular groups and individuals and don't try to counter you know, the ideology as a whole. I mean, to, to me, the analogy, and I think to set the table before we try to explain the landscape in Syria and then Iraq, Turkey, and we'll expand out, hopefully, if we have time to Afghanistan as well. Um, okay, so so you got, you got a viper's den 10 miles away from your house. You wouldn't even know of it. And there's all sorts of vipers in there, and it's back and forth and back. But and, and it's worse than that because each viper has a constituency. So it's not. See, theoretically, you could just bomb all the vipers and kill both sides of the vipers. Theoretically, you could do that, but you can't because they each have constituencies that fuel each other. And there's a rubber band effect that the more one's empowered creates an insurgency on the other side. Back and forth, back and forth. Okay, but then there's individual snakes that are like right at our front at my front door. So what I'm seeing us doing is allowing the snakes to inch into our front door, but we don't do anything. But then we go overseas. We go 10 miles away from my home, to keep up the analogy, uh, to stick my head into that nest. <laughs> and like, all right, Viper A, I'm getting you. And then meanwhile, Viper B, that's fighting Viper A, wraps its head around her neck. I'm just looking at an article now where the IRGC Iranians are declaring war on us, on our military presence there, while we're fighting their Sunni enemy. And then we feel guilty and we bring constituents of Snake A and Snake B from the Viper's Nest we would have never heard of into our home. Um, You know... So, so let, let's go back to the reality after the analogy. So what do we have in Syria? Correct me if I'm wrong. you got the Far East, very much the Northeast area, um, north, uh, northeast of Raqqa, that's Kurdish. 
So that's the one area it's non-Arab you could you could secure. And I want to get back to that in a minute that the one thing that – the one play we could make, we're actually undermining. So that that's a secure – you know the most secure area you're going to get. Then you have the entire massive center of the country, which is Sunni, hardcore Sunni. And notice I'm not talking about the groups because it's – first, let's talk about the ethnicity. Then you go to the north the northeast, and that's where it gets complicated, right? You got Damascus and Aleppo, which are the population centers, very much mixed between you have Shia, Alawite areas that are backing Assad and Iran, and Hezbollah resonates there. Um, then, but you also have different tribes of Sunnis that are bolstering Al Qaeda, and which was Al Nusra in those areas, and then you also have. On the west side, um, on the southwest side, the Syrian Golan getting towards Israel's border, you have the Druze population, which they're pretty good. They're in Israel. They're patriotic Israelis, a lot of them. Um, but then it's it's kind of a no man's land, and it's a nest for really everyone is fighting there. You got Hezbollah, but then you got Nusra, and you got um, ISIS. So with that introduction that nobody discusses – that doesn't that make Syria a very different picture now? So yeah, the viper, the viper's nest analogy is, is completely accurate, and and I think that you know it, it really goes to show that we have very few um, allies that we could really reach out to in Syria o- outside of the Kurdish fighting forces, and you know some very very small Christian forces. Um, we don't really have any natural allies, and for people. That's why, you know, I'm so alarmed when I read reports saying, you know, okay, or, or hear a Senator Lindsey Graham or John McCain saying, okay, now it's time to take out Assad and, uh, you know, just do it for human rights purposes. But we need to get out of the business of doing things for the sole purpose of protecting um, human rights. It's just, it, it's not good foreign policy and it, and it leads to short-sightedness. Yep. And, you know, taking out Assad would be, um, you know, uh, I, I'm not disagreeing at all that he's a bad guy, but it's just this delusional um, yeah. foreign policy that, that leads us down this road. And people, and I'll, I'll tell you right now that there's there's no way that any um, secular um, insurgency could potentially hold that country together. And that's why I think, you know, there's some interesting plans being pushed out there that call for more of a decentralization, you know, let the Sunnis hold their territory, let the Shiites exactly. hold their territory. And I think if we're going to support the Kurds, which is a, a noble effort to do, you need to do it through the lens of, you know, they're not going to rule the entire country. This exactly. doesn't mean we need to overthrow Assad. We need to look at the, the, the country of Syria with a realistic prism. And as you um, explored the regions earlier, that, that's very accurate. You have Iran in there, you have Russia in there, you have a lot of powerful, um, complicated actors, and the U.S. can assert its will there, but making the mistake of Yeah, exactly. Um, And making the mistake of taking out one terrorist group and letting the other roam free. There there was a big report in the Wall Street Journal that you shared with me about um, a a new terrorist group uh, aligned with al-Qaeda that's sweeping up territory, and we don't really have a plan to counter them because, remember, um, it's only ISIS right now that we're focused on. But But, but we helped create it. I I mean, see, this is the problem. 
everyone's looking at everything in a vacuum and then they contradict themselves six months later. It started with Assad. Assad's got to go when the civil war started. And then we're yelping at Assad. But then the Sunni insurgency germinated against the Alawite, Shiite-backed Assad. The same thing we saw in Iraq. I mean, this has been going on for 1,200 years. And except now with just the whole modern world and the decentralization of things, it's a lot easier to have an insurgency. And they're encouraged to do so. So it's not a matter of what I want to get people to start thinking. It's not a matter of al-Qaeda, dictators, Assad, Russia, ISIS. It's a me- you have to look at what's fueling it. It's not right. you know, chess pieces on a board or, or, or a game of risk where you could you – know, theoretically, you could beat up everyone. But no, you can't because here's why. Um the Sunni insurgency bled, and then it, it spilled over into Iraq. It was it was all over the place. They were mar- ISIS started marching onto Baghdad, and everyone's like, "We got to do something about ISIS." And I was the only one saying, "Like, dude, I mean, I, I, it's horrible what they're doing, but they're they're doing it to each other. There's no way we can get in there and disentangle the good from the bad. Other than the only thing I did support was helping the Kurds, and, and which it didn't cost us much." To secure their areas because that's ground that you could hold and retain and and sustain the investment you put in. And they're in our interest because they counter both the Sunni bad guys and Iran and Turkey for that matter, which is which is good. And then that's it. But then we bailed out Iran. It, Baghdad, we viewed as an ally that we had to save. They're not an ally. They're an enemy. We, should, we, we shouldn't view Iraq as an ally. We should view it as three different countries, and Baghdad's an enemy. We bailed them out, and you and I were warning for years that you're going to create Iranian hegemony. Now they did it because we def- defeated ISIS, and we're still going after ISIS even after the caliphate's defeated. And that, but then, and then, yeah. but then, other people say, "But well, Daniel, now, now we have to worry about the the um, Shias." But let me ask you this thing, Jordan: Isn't this the same problem? So let's say we turn our attention and just go all out after Assad, Hezbollah, um, and Iran presence in in um, Syria. But then you're going to tip the balance the other way. So you re- reference this Wall Street Journal article. Very important. Tahrir al-Asham is the new ISIS-style group in, in Idlib province. It's not, in, it's not um, in the, you know, like Raqqa in the east where ISIS was. It's, it's the Sunni area that's close to the Shias in the, you know, outside of Damascus in the northwest. It's the largest safe haven of al-Qaeda since 9-11 now. Okay, so, you know, on the one hand, I, we did tip the balance of power to them, but, it, you know, a lot of even some of our friends are saying we need to really now push the other way, but then we're going to have the next thing, and Al-Sham is going to be the new household name in American politics, right? Yeah, well, I, I hope that they get a better, more attractive English language <laughs> name, because that, that might be tough for, for Americans to really uh, catch on to that one, but. It, it um you know it, it really comes back to this whole issue with entangling alliances that even you know our founders warned about. We're getting in bed with some sketchy characters in the Middle East, and and you're right, it does cause this this backlash. Um, and and that's why you know we we also need to recalibrate our foreign policy to to take really a look at what's going on with the Iraqi government. Should we be friends with these guys? What's going on with Turkey? Um, are they helping us in Iraq and Syria? What 
what is our national interest in Iraq and Syria with realistically the Iraqi government being controlled by Iran? Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the words of our founders shouldn't be neglected in this sense. They realize that there are people who aren't going to share our ideology. Um, you know, we're already in Iraq and Syria. We have thousands of soldiers there. So, you know, at this point, I'd like to see um, more of an effort being made. You know, I've been vouching for the Kurds for so long, and, and not many people are listening, unfortunately, <laughs> or at least no, the, the Pentagon's not listening. Um, but it would be much more simple if we didn't have to um, essentially defend our alliances with these sketchy players in the Middle East and simply say, like, this, this, these are the groups who are, we're going to support. These are the people who are vetted. And, you know, everyone else have at it. If I exactly. march into Baghdad and the, you know, the corrupt Iraqi prime minister is going to be a coward and let um, them march all over him, let him, uh, stand, let Iran deal with that mess and let them kill each other. Let you it know? be Iran's so problem. And, and, and uh, Jordan, one of the things that really bothers me is this Russia talk. You know, I'm no weakling on Russia. I hate Putin. But what they're getting wrong about Russia is that the only reason why they're empowered is because we empowered them. We do the dirty work for Russia. So Russia gets to have a free ride in Syria because we stick our head between the two snakes while they look out for their strategic interests. If we made them own it, we said, hey, buddies, you know what? Go screw yourself with the Sunni insurgency now and sick the Sunni insurgency on them. That's what I, I would stand outside of it and do our interests. But look at what we're doing. So – we bailed out the Shias and Russia, for that matter, from the Sunni insurgency. Well, let me back up. Jordan, isn't it correct that a couple of years ago there was a time when Assad was really teetering and the Russians were not really going to help them? He almost got kicked out because the Sunni insurgency was insanely strong. They had the caliphate. He was on his own. Wasn't he on his own until we went and bailed out Assad and Iran and Hezbollah, and IRGC, and Baghdad. And then Russia's like, oh! You know, see, like, Russia, all things equal, they want Assad as a client state. They have interest with having him be their snake. But they're not stupid enough to own him in the sense that if he has a Sunni civil war sicked on him, they're not going to own that, right? We owned it for yeah, them. What a, lot of, what a lot of people don't realize is that the Russian economy is in pretty awful shape. <laughs> they don't have the ability to debate a $700 billion budget for their military and, you know, where $50 billion more dollars is going to go. Um, if they, you know, if Putin and the Kremlin calculated that Assad was, was going to fall, they probably wouldn't be in Syria right now because they just can't, you know, fight and, and exactly. you know, get in the middle of an Islamic civil war. And, you know, as, as great as it is to have the best military in the world, it's also, um, you know, comes back to bite us in the behind sometimes when we have so much um, money delegated towards defense that we have the ability to fight sometimes unnecessary battles in the wow, Middle East. And I point. think that's the result of, you know, an unlimited budget for the Pentagon. And that's why you and I, I think on, uh, on your podcast a couple of months ago, we talked about um, how we need to hold you know, the Pentagon's budget accountable because stuff like this tends to happen and we start to venture out into the Middle East. And you, know, look, you look at a country like Israel, 
um, they're not wasting money and resources and tactics on fighting. Why don't they ever um, occupy a Muslim country? They're right there. They are. If anyone is affected a hundred million times more than us, it's Israel. But you don't find them doing stupid stuff. Exactly. And, and that's why you have to look at why hasn't Assad fallen? Um, Israel knows exactly where Assad is probably 20 out of every 24 hours of the day. They can take him out in a second if they want to. Why hasn't our greatest ally in the Middle East taken out Assad? So when Lindsey Graham goes on television and says, you know, he's got to go, we have the moral we, we necessary will to do this and we need to do it right away, you have to ask yourself, why hasn't Israel done it? And what they know is that the spillover, or the guy that comes next, who will probably be an Alawite if they can hold power, might be a hundred times, you know, as bad as Assad is with the chemical weapons attacks and, you know, killing indiscriminate you know, men, women, children. The next person could, um, you know, invite Russia in to, uh, you know, inflict even more chemical warfare on Sunnis and, and you know, turn the country into even an even worse situation. So there's no, there's no guarantee that things will get better by taking out Assad. I think Assad, if anything, is a product of, of the region. I mean, you look at Saddam Hussein, you look at Gaddafi. Um, this is a region rife with dictators that are just like the guy. So he's not um, on his own in terms of his brutality. Um, you know, it's certainly not unprecedented. ISIS, ISIS, everyone was telling yeah. me ISIS was the biggest brutality we've ever seen in the entire world. But ISIS is their enemy and and this is what makes no sense so we empowered we created the sunni insurgency right we got rid of saddam who was a sunni um we tipped baghdad to iran and right there is when we lost iraq that's what people don't realize it wasn't obama as much as i don't like it wasn't the pullout it was destined to always happen when al-qaeda and iraq died down it morphed into isis isis morphed down down and it will probably be something else, maybe Tahrir al-Sham. But it's always going to be that way because it's like, Assad's got to go. No, ISIS. No, Shushaka. Uh, no, Kakalua. I mean, it's a hope. It's going to keep, we, we keep doing this. And we're schleppers for both sides rather than making both of them schleppers for our will. I mean, don't, don't we have to just identify, okay, our goals are this. I don't, it's money and ICBMs. Right, that's what could hurt us. People in sand dunes in, in Syria, Iraq, and Afghanistan, non-nation states, they cannot hurt us unless we bring them in as immigrants, which was 9-11, which was all the attacks since then. What, what, what we should be concerned with is where the money is and the ability to hit us from afar. And that's Iran right. creating ICBMs because they don't need them for Israel. They can hit them with conventional missiles. It's Iran, but Iran proper, not Iran's dumpster fire proxy wars with Al Qaeda and Sunni insurgencies. Because don't everyone's like, well, Daniel, you're tough on Iran. Shouldn't we fight Iran? Well, but we're also fighting Al Qaeda too. You know, like, it doesn't make any sense. Use soft power and statecraft to undermine Iran, which actually regime change could work because that is homogenous. It's non-Arab, Persian nationalism, um, more open to Western society. That's something that's not true in Iraq and, and Syria. Um, and then relentlessly support the Kurds as a shield against both Iran until the Ayatollahs fall, Baghdad, which should be an enemy, Hezbollah, and Turkey. And then everything is oriented consistently towards that. But instead, what are we doing? We're contradicting ourselves. Oh, Assad, we got to fight him. You know, but then on the other hand, we're helping Hezbollah in Lebanon. Oh, 
we got we to gotta have troops in there to protect the Kurds. And officially, it's what we're doing there. But we're also doing other things with the troops that undermine. But then we're supporting Turkey. Oh, let's, let's fight Iran's proxy wars through hard power and an untenable outcome. But Iran itself, the head of the snake, when you have protests that we could have turned into a rebellion just by throwing crap in the game. We, th- that was the last time you were on with me, by the way, on the show. We declined to do it. Oh, let's fight the Houthis because we got to fight Iran in Yemen. And then I'm just reading a story now um, on Long War Journal. They have a lot of good stuff there. Uh, longwarjournal.org. As Senate probes Yemen role, U.S. quietly continues strikes. Who are we fighting? U.S. CENTCOM has not released details of any strikes, but um, what do they say? The U.S. has conducted 25 strikes in Yemen in 2018. And who are they against? Al-Qaeda, the enemy of the Houthis. I mean, I, I, I just, Jordan, this is not hawkish. This is asinine. You're right. And it goes, it goes back to the, the argument that we shouldn't be fighting other people's proxy wars. As encouraged as I am by Saudi Arabia's reforms, it seems that the effort in Yemen, um, at least to convince people to stay the course, is that, you know, we need to support our allies. Okay, so we can support our allies, but we don't need to, you know, fire missiles into a country where we don't really see any particular strategic gain. And I think, you know, to give this administration some credit, the, the refocusing, I, I think President Trump really understands the Iranian threat and, you know, people in the White House National Security Council. However, there is a disconnect between them and what's going on in the Pentagon right now. You know, as tough as President Trump's language on Iran is, we haven't seen the strategy change to really effectively target Iranian assets. Um, you know, you even saw these leaks to the New York Times um, coming from supposedly coming from the Pentagon about, you know, how Mattis didn't want to change the strategy from only attacking ISIS and, you know, the, he didn't, he disagreed with the president. So it, 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 it's, it's a mess over there. And, you know, if you really want to go after Iran, um, I, again, I, I could point to Israel, uh, blow up one of their air bases in Syria. Uh, that, that's a real threat to the United States when you have fighter checks. Um, that, that, that was brilliant. On our allies. That was brilliant. In, in my podcast uh, last week, uh, and I said it on Levin Show on Fox News, the Bloods and the Crips. So I noted how everyone got Israel wrong. Like, oh, Israel's sucking us into Syria. No, no, no. Israel does strike and maneuver. They don't own the dumpster fire. They didn't go after Assad. They went after his ally, but it wasn't it had nothing to do with trying to own the civil war, uh, take care of the plumbing and electricity in Raqqa, which, by the way, is what we're, our military is doing while we're getting shot at from all sides and having snakes wrapped around their neck. They just went in there and they used the cover of everyone outraged at Assad to blow... They killed, what was it, like 14 IRGC punks? Um, and it was a weapons transfer because that was to his bullet. But let me tie that into something. I want to get your comment on this. Uh, Free Beacon put out an article late last night. Um David Statterfield, an acting assistant secretary in the State Department's Bureau of Near Eastern Affairs, informed Congress on Wednesday that the United States will continue to fund and arm the LAF, Lebanese Armed Forces, despite mounting concerns. Concerns is being controlled by Hezbollah. So, Jesus. I don't know what to tell you. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a disaster. Um, there's been some great scholarship done. I would point listeners to the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and, it, of course, his long war journal that you cited earlier. And you type in, type in Lebanese armed forces, 
and you'll find exactly why Daniel's laughing about this subject, because they are so weak. Um, Hezbollah has tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of missiles. They're getting sophisticated weaponry from, from Iran. They control the entirety of southern Lebanon. There are no Lebanese flags that fly in southern Lebanon. Um, they are Hezbollah flags. Uh, they they are completely controlled by the Iranian regime, and um, you know by proxy that means that the Lebanese armed forces, are, because they coordinate with Hezbollah, not only coordinate but they basically receive their orders from Hezbollah, and the United States military unfortunately is still working with these people, and we know exactly, <laughs> you know it doesn't take a you know a CIA intelligence analyst to find out this information. It's all open source, and that's why you know I encourage listeners to the podcast. Just type in Lebanese Armed Forces Hezbollah on, on you know, the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Long War Journal, and you'll find exactly what I'm talking about. You'll see American Abrams tanks, um, which were delivered to the Lebanese Armed Forces with Hezbollah flags flying on top of them. Uh, how does that happen? It, it, it's such a disaster um, that it, you can't even... It, it's very important right now to lobby against any type of funding for the Lebanese Armed Forces um, they're completely controlled by, by Iran and Hezbollah, and it, it's, it's really sad at this point, and it really goes to show what the, how, much of, how off our Middle East uh, foreign policy and you know, resource allocation is. You know, we incur the lowest common denominator of all sides. We do the worst things in each given theater that each one alone contradicts the other. So, I mean, I'm told by everyone, oh my gosh, i got to go after Assad now because he's impairing Iran. But then... It's like it doesn't cost us anything. We we don't do the things that that don't you know. It's like there's soft power, then there's hard power that's very risky, and you get your guys killed, spend spend a lot of money on it, and then there's just merely not helping the bad guys. It does. Statterfield. I'm just reading again. Statterfield disclosed to the surprise of many on Capitol Hill that the United States has quote personnel working closely with and in the Lebanese Armed Forces. You know what that means? You know what that means. You know what personnel. That means we have our best and brightest SEALs, Green Berets, most likely Green Berets. I I mean, could you look someone in the eye and say, your son has died fighting for the Lebanese Armed Forces? I mean, what the heck? I mean, and no one's giving voice to this. This is why, you know, a lot of people think they're being hawkish by opposing you know the effort to get Congress to real, you know, control authorization declaration of war. Like you're hamstringing the president. No, it's so we can ask these questions, so we don't do dovish things, not hawkish things. That's a dovish thing to do. That's a pathetic thing to do. Um, so that's on the Hezbollah side. But then let's go on the other contradictory side. So you and I have long maintained that if you draw a line around Kurdistan, outside of that box, there's nothing you can do without gratuitously tipping the balance towards one side of the civil war, which we then have to clean up by tipping the balance to the other side, and again and over and over again, get our soldiers killed, our special ops fighting for terrible people. It just it breaks my heart. You know, this is not even funny anymore. Um, but the one thing we could possibly do is, is help the Kurds. And again, rather than get our guys killed, it really doesn't cost much. They have their own fighting force. Just give them a little backing weapons. So we're kind of doing that, and even Obama kind of did that. But could you speak to how we're undermining that at the same time 
we're doing nothing about Turkey's war on them, and we're downright backing our Turkish friends. And could you talk a little bit about the indictments against the Turkish thugs that beat up American Kurds on our soil and how the government let that go? So, so there's a great case study for a successful Kurdistan, even though it was hampered by U.S. policy. And of course, that's you know, we've been advocating for a Kurdish state in northern Iraq for quite some time, you and I. And the Kurds basically have autonomy there. They get bullied by the Iraqi government, but they've managed to carve out a space for themselves. And the Kurds in Syria have a very similar situation in the Northeast. And they have been the U.S.'s fighting force against the Islamic State on the ground for quite some time. Um, you know, our operators are there side by side with them. But we've found... Um, we we paid off all these Arab rebels, and you know this happened a lot during the Obama administration. And you see Trump's kind of rolling back this program. We we shelled out millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions. Who really knows? Because it's in the black budget, um, money to these Arab fighting forces, and they never really helped us out. You know, some of them took up arms with Al Qaeda, but who did help us out consistently were the Kurds. Um, they, who knows what promises we made to them. Um, they deserve autonomy. Um, they don't threaten us. They, you know, they're wholly supportive of the United States. And again, we, I, I think they, des- they deserve a state, and it's in the, the interest of the United States for them to have land that they can hold in the Middle East and you know, eventually a state of their own, but at least start by declaring through our through our foreign policy strategy that they you know should have this territory and that we're going to you know help them sustain it not through ground troops but um you know that's where i think our primary focus in syria should be uh not fighting these islamic civil wars but if we're going to have people there you know at least we should be advancing our national security interests and the best way to do so is through the Kurds. And, and that's um, that's your risk at, versus return matrix right there because it's what ground can be held and at what cost. This is ground that is proven to be held and at little cost, whereas the rest of the country is ground that can't be held at a tremendous cost. Exactly. And and, and moving to uh, to the Turkey situation, what you have right now is an aspiring, I think, Islamic authoritarian in Erdogan who has a very encouraged population that really gets fired up by his you know, caliphatist rhetoric where, and he talks uh, you know so he he talks so much trash about the United States and about President Trump and you know it's one thing to involve yourself in rhetorical battles but this is also a guy who meets with Hamas leaders who empowers the Muslim Brotherhood um, who really um, inspires jihadists around the world uh, are the ones trying to resuscitate the um, you know the, the uh, Ottoman Empire in a sense that he, he's a very proud um, Islamic authoritarian Ottomanist and he he is very far removed from the American strategy right now dealing with Turkey as a NATO partner is still stuck um, you know decades behind the current date and you know Turkey it, it's so sad because you know, of course, they, you know, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, they, they've engaged secularism for decades. And, you know, it, it's all really going to hell, unfortunately, through this president and through an empowered Islamist party in Turkey. And, and they're not our allies. They're, in, in Syria, they're, they're bombing the Kurds. They're not really taking ISIS seriously. 
Um, you know, they're holding summit. Wait, 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 back up. Trade agreement. Wait, wait a minute. I just want to frame that. So we're crying over Assad's attack on the very province of Tahrir al-Sham, which is the new ISIS. And I'm not, look, you're going to have pictures of babies, and but you can't disentangle that. There's nothing we can do about that. Um, the, the, primarily, that is a hotbed of bad, and, and we're, we're falling on our sword for them. But then we won't respond to Turkey attacking the one force that actually is holding a part of Syria on behalf of our interests that's not it, it's quite, Sunni or Shia. It, yeah, it's quite strange, isn't it? And there's even allegations that are uh, that are pretty legitimate um, that Turkey is using chemical weapons against the Kurds, too. Whoa! Which, wait, 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 wait. So I was told we, uh, we have to draw a red line on, on the use of chemical weapons. So why aren't we bombing Turkey? Well, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily supportive of bombing Turkey, but at least calling them out. And um, there has been no official U.S. response to Turkey's chemical weapons, alleged chemical weapons attacks against the Kurds. And regardless of whether they were chemical weapons, they're still bombing and killing people that fought for us and, uh, you know, fought side by side with American operators. And it, it, it's, it, it's, it's just shocking. And the Pentagon, you know, they invite these Turkish leaders in. We go to Ankara and have summits with them. Everything's fine. But everything's not fine. You know, it's a disaster. And I just want to reiterate what's so bad about Turkey is, again, identifying who's a problem and who's not a problem. Who affects our interests, who doesn't. Turkey and Iran are really the axis of evil in the Middle East. Well, I should say Turkey, Iran, and Qatar, and we'll ho- hopefully have time to get to that. Because, again, 9-11 wasn't hatched in the, foot, in the, in the mountains of the Hindu Kush. That happened because it was just it was a no man's land, so they you went there. It has nothing to do with anything. It was hatched in Saudi Arabia and Iran. And now Turkey and Qatar are the new Sunni problem because you know the government in Saudi Arabia changed. The problem we always had was Iran on the Shia side and there was a Sunni side. But it has to come either from infrastructure and money. It's not – there's no money in the sand dunes in, in Anbar, in Baghdad, in Raqqa, and in Afghanistan that doesn't affect us. But what does, what you want to get rid of is the money, and it's Erdogan in Turkey and Qatar that are funding the Sunnis, but also at the same time, ironically – could you explain for our listeners a little bit? So the, the, there's like three types of snakes. <laughs> There's the Sunni snake, there's a Shia snake, and then there's a third type of snake that's the worst because it's connected to both. Meaning while A and B are fighting each other, there's C that kind of bridges them. It's very complicated, but aren't Turkey and Qatar, they're Sunni, and they fund all the Sunni terrorists, but don't they have ties to Iran? Yeah, they're certainly opportunist Islamists, and you see a lot of that in Qatar and Turkey. I think that they... They, these people see themselves as the future leaders of an Islamic caliphate in which everyone you know, is under their rule. So it makes sense, at least for now, to make um, diplomatic efforts to engage with these nefarious elements as you know, the future leaders of the Islamic world. And that's the issue, right? So, so how do the Houthis get ballistic missiles in Yemen to—you uh, know, they don't, they don't build uh, their own factories. These people— 
um, you know, they're not chemical engineers or anything. They're just jihadi terrorists roaming around the deserts. What happens is they get um, advanced weapons through state proxies, and then they are taught how to launch these weapons. So these, these dangerous weapons are developed in Iran, and the financing for it comes through a lot of the Gulf. Um, and that's why, you know, it's, I think you have to commend President Trump here and really, you know, his first speech and most important international speech occurred in Riyadh, where he called out um, particularly, you know, the, the Gulf Cooperation Council, Arab countries, and called on them to stop the terror financing. Because if you stop terror financing, these roaming jihadi nomads obviously won't have access to these weapons. So you're right. The focus should always be on who are the funders, who are the people that advance, that possess these advanced weapons and who are ready to you know, disperse them worldwide. And this also includes potentially to, uh, of course, our southern border. Yeah, I mean, that is exactly the point. It, 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 wow, I mean – Gosh, we, we got to get you on the National Security Council, I'm telling you. I mean, I wouldn't want to lose you here at Conservative Review, but that that's what it is. Because I was just – as you were talking, I was thinking – and we do this a lot on the show. We we juxtapose domestic and foreign policy, and, and it's the same principles, the same stupid cycle of government where government creates a problem and then creates a solution to, to solve the problem but exacerbates it and then engenders a new need for a solution. And part of the problem is – you know, think of it the domestic war on drugs. You know, a lot of people say, oh, it didn't work. Well, it didn't work because we didn't go after the source and we refused to go after the source for political reasons of the problem. Yeah, you're going to spin your wheels if you just go after every little, um, you know, secondary and third tier um, druggie that's just kind of peddling a couple ounces of marijuana. Yeah, but you go after the money with the drug cartels, you cut off the snake. And that's the thing here. We're not using the soft power that is so easy, the soft power to go after the money with Turkey and Iran and Qatar, the axis of yeah, evil in the it, Middle East. But then we'll get the analogy, into the, 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 the hard stuff. Yeah, the analogy is basically the, the burning of the poppy fields foreign policy. It's the same thing, really. As with the war on drugs um, that started really during the Nixon administration, the the lesson learned, you're right, is you need to cut off the, the financing. Um, you can you can burn down the poppy fields or AKA kill the terrorists as much as you want, but as long as the money stays there, you know, these people are gonna continue to repopulate. So there's really a strong connection between how, you know, the policies of both, you know, the war on drugs and the war on terror are off the rails. And it's really for the same reason is that you're going after individuals or groups or particular fields and you're not really focusing on the ideology exactly. that um, empowers this stuff or the corruption or the financing. And look, I'll say this publicly. I think you and I are, are on the same page here. We, we disagree with even some friends. And there's a group of hawks that I think are better than some others, and they're well-intentioned, and they're generally bothered by jihad. But I think it's a strategic outlook when you look at things and you're like, oh my gosh, that's outrageous. No, B's outrageous, and he's cutting off heads. you got to calm down and, and look at everything in totality and then drive a consistent strategy. And of course, you need, you need a functioning Congress to do that. But part of that is, you know, again, 50 countries – Roughly 50 that have a predominant Muslim population, you're going to have this problem. 
you're going to have some group that calls itself some version of Al-Qaeda. But the, the key for us is, again, North Korea, they can hit us and have a desire to hit us. Iran's on the cusp of it and has a desire, plus they, they're the ones that have terror networks that are in the Western Hemisphere, as we discussed. They've been the biggest problem since the 70s, and we've refused to um, – You know, it's them, and it's Qatar and Turkey. Those are the problems. You don't need. I'm not even. You don't need to spend our forces to Qatar, Turkey, Iran, and North Korea all in one shot, or most of them ever. You don't need to expend ten thousand American lives and three trillion dollars on occupying and nation building. You effectively use our tools of statecraft to cut off the funding, and that's where it is. It's like imagine if I told you you get a billion dollars worth for a million dollar investment versus you get negative a billion dollars for a trillion dollar investment. And that's that's the choices we make. Um, to kind of continue this line of thought, I want to go on to Africa. Isn't this the case in Chad, Nigeria, Maritwana, the sub-Saharan Africa – that we're getting our bravest soldiers killed and involved in now more and more. I don't hear much about it, but you better believe we're getting more involved in it. Could someone explain to me, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go into the viper's nest, there's going to be outrages. There's going to be outrages against our soldiers, and we're going to get all stirred up about it. But what, what do we, what ground is there to hold on behalf of whom? Yeah, there's a lot of U.S. money being spent in Africa, and there's a lot of ground troops that are currently in Africa without being called ground troops, <laughs> and they're authorized under the AUMF to uh, you know fight the people responsible for 9/11, <laughs> even though these people have you know very little to do with it, other than I guess they share the ideology. Um, but then you'd have to change the language of the war authorization. But regardless, because I think you and I are on the same plane, where Congress. There's, there's really like maybe 10 to 12 congressmen that are serious about, you know, holding the presidential's war, president's war powers in check. So it's kind of a dead issue right now. I mean, it's going to take some serious effort to really to reverse course and have Congress assert their constitutional authority over war powers and over sending our troops in the, into the Middle East and Africa. But it's interesting, the, the rationalization, and, and I talk to people in the more um, neoconservative folks that think tanks a lot about this issue, and I, and I asked them the same question, and it is basically, why do we feel like we need to have people in Chad, Niger, Somalia running missions in you know, the middle of the uh, Saharan uh, going after these jihadis? And they said that basically, um, you know, they won't admit it, but it amounts to nation building. And um, they said, you know, these countries would be much worse off if it hadn't been, you know, if we let these jihadi groups go unchecked. Um, but again, and where did the jihadi groups you know, come from? It, did, did they, yeah, did, and, and my response is always, how can it possibly get worse? If you look at Somalia, you look at Sudan, I mean, these countries are just devastated. Uh, zero economic empowerment. Uh, and and there, there's constantly... Wait, wait, what, what, wait, wait a minute. Jordan, you never heard of this free Somali army? <laughs> no, we, we lost a, yeah. a, a soldier recently fighting for the Free Somali Army. I, I would love to know what they are, who they represent, which ethnicity, and which ground we're going to hold on whose behalf, for what purpose. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, I, uh, I, this is mentally ill. Yeah, it's, uh, 
it, it, it really, it again, goes back to this uh, bloated Pentagon budget and the, feeling the need to do peacekeeping operations while sacrificing U.S. troops. And it, it's just really unfortunate. Um, I, I don't buy into the argument necessarily that we are there because things would be worse if we weren't there. And and that's why we need to stop thinking through this prism. Yep. Um, you know, it's impossible to prove a negative. So why are we you know engaging <laughs> in these ridiculous re- re- debates over you know whether whether or not things can get worse in failed states? Right. So the, again, yeah, U.S. resources. Like let's let's focus on the the giant Chinese threat that's emerging or the North Korean nuclear weapons program or Iran's nuclear weapons program. And you're you're 100% correct in your statement earlier. Like, let's just focus on the big threats. Who can attack the homeland? And and let's you know focus on the you know empowering the American citizen and focusing on them first and foremost. And that's why you know of course you're such a big advocate for what's going on with the southern border because that stuff is really what. Um, That's what it it shocks the consciousness. It it shocks me. See, there's one thing if. Lindsey Graham and those types would have stupid, you know, th- you know, uh, just fantasies about the Middle East. But they were like, "We need five hundred thousand troops in Mexico to deal with the, you know, twenty nine thousand people killed in Mexico because of the drug cartels that no one wants to talk about. You know, all the problems in our country, tens of thousands of people dying from fentanyl, which even the stuff that comes from China, it all is distributed from the Mexican gangs and cartels that come through the border since twenty thirteen, and." No, not only aren't they doing that, they're not. They, they want to, you know. I would argue they are cruel and incompassionate because they don't give a darn about Americans and Mexicans um, and the market that the open borders creates for this chaos. And and that's what I just find shocking. I think this is a good time to switch over before we call it a day. It's getting late. Um, Afghanistan. You know, you, you made a great point about proving a negative. It could always get worse. I'm looking right now at a map. Um, <clears throat> From the Cigar Report, Special Inspector General of Afghanistan Reconstruction, Cigar, it's an acronym. Um, and basically, you know, Congress ignores their reports, but they've done pretty good work. I'm looking at a map, and I, I look, I have no nice way of saying this, and I, I don't want me to be insensitive, but it almost looks like, you know, a CT scan of stage five cancer. I mean, when you look at the when it says the contested or so it says Taliban controlled, then it says contested, which you and I both mean it. No, it means it's a hellhole. It's, you know, contested my rear end. It means the Taliban control it. It's literally everywhere. It's like Kabul surrounded. It's the entire country, and it's shockingly even the northeast, which was very um, Turkmen Tajik. Um, where we originally had the Northern Alliance allies controlled even at the height of the Taliban before we went in, controlled that kind of 15% in the northeast corner. It's, it's gone. Um, looking at FDD's long war journal again, in Hellman, Taliban dominates security situation. Damn it. You know, Jordan, do you know any, how many of our people we lost in Hellman province? I think the, the the Navy SEALs in that area or close by that area, um, you know, the whole extortion 17. We had a new yeah, strategy. So, so, How is that working out? So the, the arguments that I'm hearing these days in foreign policy circles is that if we leave 
Um, it, there's a lot of parallels to Syria here because, and, and you know, keep in mind, for instance, that Syria, there's actually U.S. allies in the region. And, and you can make a case, a much better case for intervention in Syria, in my opinion. Um, but what people are saying now is that if you leave Afghanistan, then Iran and Russia are going to come in. And my response basically is, okay, let Iran and Russia have at it. You know, they can go kill each other, um, go fight uh, al-Qaeda, go chase down ISIS. Uh, they want to empower the Taliban. But unfortunately, um, unless we send tens of thousands of ground troops into Afghanistan, you look at the World Long War Journal map, um, our people our supposed people, you know, the people we pay off and who are probably going to turn against us at some point, a lot of them at least, um, control only about half the country at this point. Um, a lot of it's contested. And, you know, the control, it, it, it's tough to really put it on paper because, as you know, they're not necessarily ideologically opposed to Taliban rule. So real Taliban ideological control much be, might be much higher than their physical presence there. Because, of course, they're the motivated jihadis. Exactly. Um, you know, it's not a game Afghan of risk. In, yeah. The average Afghan that lives in the mud hut, they don't really want to, you know, have their farm get blown up and, you know, have their family get killed. So they just want to stay as subsistence farmers. And when the U.S. money runs out, they are not necessarily going to want to fight the Taliban on their own. Right. So, so the motivated jihadis will most likely take over the country. And, and, and it's sad because, you know, we don't want bad people ruling um, people that just want to make a living for themselves. And, it, and it's awful. But at, at some point, you need to look at the geopolitical realities in Afghanistan and realize that there is no um, American interest that calls for the only way to stop the Taliban right now from taking over the country it's to send tens of thousands of soldiers in there, and and you and I, of course, rule that out entirely. No, no, but I see. I, the, I, I would. Di- I mean, I I think you're headed here, but I'm just to reiterate. We we did that. We had 140,000 coalition troops in a massive surge from 2009 to 2014. We lost over a thousand soldiers, thousands more injured, and we got nothing for it. Now, relatively, it's it's even worse now than then. But that's what I'm, in other words, you're right. If you put 150,000 troops right now, very short term, you could hold certain areas together by paying off village heads. And we, we discussed this a lot with Jaron Jackson, our buddy um, who fought in Afghanistan as a platoon commander, um, and all his stories about that, how it's irremediable. But we're not looking, like you said, the people. It's not a matter of the Taliban, it's who they represent. So what, what no one understands, what the whole troop surge crowd doesn't understand, and what they don't understand in Anbar and Iraq either, is that the surges, all it could do is temporarily, at a very painful cost, very tenuously hold ground. But then you're forever yeah. an occupier, and over time, the insurgency builds and builds against you. So unless you're willing to spend tr- hundreds of trillions of dollars and thousands of lives and for a hundred, two hundred, five hundred years until the you know the end of times, it do, it doesn't and, and work. So many, yeah, and so many people are losing focus over what why we're in Afghanistan in the first place. And let's go back to September 11th. We we went to Afghanistan to kill Osama bin Laden, eliminate his network, and you know raise hell amongst Al Qaeda and and basically wipe them out of Afghanistan. 
And we basically killed everyone that was responsible for 9-11, right? So we don't... There, there's this there's this impulse but, but jordan there's a billion people that probably agree with 9-11 on some level said to say yeah so so that's why i think that you know there's this impulse among decision makers that okay we, we killed al-qaeda now we need to like fix afghanistan and make it in our image and that was that's been the foreign policy the past 15 years in afghanistan and that's why it's time to just recognize you know our our troops did, did great things. They served nobly. Unfortunately, so many people passed away in, in these you know, nation-building efforts. But we went there for the right reasons. We stayed there for the wrong reasons. And you know, it's time to just recognize that and, and, and get out of the country. No, no. I mean, and that's obvious. You know, I, I started to recognize that in Bush's second term, certainly by Obama. I was reluctant for many years to articulate that because it was just that one thing like, man, you know, it's like the more you get sucked into something, the more you gamble, the more you lose all those lies, all those lies. But you know what? After 16 years, there's nothing more to do. There's nothing. I mean, um, it's just it is just so sad. And and, and what bothers me is, you know, I I think we need to start a group, you know. Foreign policy hawks against stupid interventions because what, what think about it you, you like you mentioned it's not hawkish because it hurts our resolve and our resources and our deterrent against the threats that are really there. China knows we're bogged down, and that's really what's buttressing North Korea, which is a threat. Iran knows we don't have an appetite to go after them because we're too busy um, playing cat and mouse and chasing our tail in their rat holes elsewhere. Um, you know. I think of Mexico on our border. I don't think anyone would justify a sacrifice of Afghanistan if we did it in Mexico, which it's like, really, that you could say, man, if we don't get involved, we're going to have tens of thousands of people die from drugs. Um, you know, and, and yet we don't think twice about it. And I, I just, um, here's my question for you before we, we wrap it up. You know, I've been very critical of the president whenever I need to be. You know, I just call it as it is. I support him where he's good. I really, you see it clear. His intuition is pretty much if 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 the president were listening into this conversation, he would agree to hundred percent of it. But what we're seeing is it doesn't seep down, and and he's very reluctant about. It. He doesn't like it. He knows it's bogus. Why is it that he can't change things fundamentally? So I, I think that it's just that Washington, people don't recognize that, especially on foreign policy, there's a bipartisan establishment consensus. And it's very difficult to fight against that establishment consensus. But whenever people do, it seems to have great, um, you know, it seems to have bring great progress for the United States. I and mean, look at what President Trump had to go through to move, just move the U.S. embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And look, there's now half a dozen countries that are following him. And, and that's on every foreign policy issue, there's a consensus that just calls for staying the course or, or don't question the status quo, even though in the 21st century, American foreign policy has been so damaged by our endeavors you know, far into the wilds of Afghanistan and uh, getting into other people's uh, you know, Islamic civil wars. And, and, and that's why it, 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 I think it's so challenging for the president to to really go after the status quo, especially when he put in place military advisors who are for it, too. And 
you can't understate the influence that Mattis is having on him, the Secretary of Defense, mm. uh, Secretary Kelly, the former National Security Advisor McMaster. These are all products of that same Washington consensus that doesn't really, um, really sit back. Uh, these, these are tactical thinkers, uh, especially the military folks. But, you know, this Washington bubble just assumes that we just need to keep pushing forward with these same failed strategies that we talked about um, throughout this show today. And that's why like, I just want to call upon listeners and people that are interested in foreign policy to really just take a step back and look at what the U.S. interests in the region are and you know, what we can do to really secure those interests and protect Americans at home, which, of course, is the ultimate goal. You know, you mentioned something really important there about moving the embassy to Israel. And I have this working theory that the way the um, swamp, you know, the political elites, the way they deter anyone from changing the status quo, which is horrible. You, you mentioned two things. One is that they'll always say, well, it could always get worse. It will get worse. But they use the word destabilize. They use it on domestic policy all the time. If you want to do something bold on on healthcare changes, on reforming the market system – you wouldn't want to destabilize the markets, would you? Even yeah, we can't. We can't privatize the VA because, of course, that'll destabilize the great everything. System, right. So the <laughs> lesson in life is you got to rip the bandaid off. If that, if I had a meeting with President Trump, that's what I what I would tell him, and that's what he did with the embassy. You and I both know that even some of the more pro-Israel, but kind of like neocon, wimpy type of Republicans, had they won and become president, in their heart they would have wanted to move the embassy. They wouldn't have done it because all the losers were. You're gonna, this is going to happen. Like, they're going to get so scared. Trump's like, no, we're going to do it. And you know what? It changes the reality. Now, Romania just announced they're going to move it. And if we just announce, you guys suck. We're done. Like, like a hawkish, not, not a defeatist, like, pullout type of thing. Actually, we're going to now presume our own interest. We're going to pursue them. You guys suck. Have it out. Kill each other. We're going to have a Kurd-centric strategy there. Them and nothing. You suck, Turkey. You're on notice. We're cutting off funding to you. And, and this is it. You know, you're going to have a, a, a realignment a reprioritization re of alliances and those that are on the fence that don't know where we stand and will go after the strongest player will be the strongest player. That's how you're hawkish and strong foreign policy without getting your head chopped off. Exactly. And we need to take back the definitions, what it means to be hawkish. And I think you, you talk about this a lot. Um, of getting into other people's messes isn't hawkish. And, and we, we need to assume the moral high ground here and not uh, be apologetic about where we stand about protecting Americans, and, and that's that's the important part. Is that we need to you know reintroduce to people that neoconservatives does not mean hawkish. Hawkish means we're protecting American interests, and that's what we care about first and foremost, and last too. And, and that's really what the president campaigned on. You know, he he wasn't isolationist. It was America first. In other words. He wasn't Pat Buchanan and Paul and and Ron Paul. He was very strong on you know you know heck he was talking about torture and you know waterboarding. I mean he's not he's not you know one of those. But he was like yeah what what are we getting at? These guys are fleecing us. It was a totally different thing, and everyone's just viewing it myopically. Um, and you know I'm I'm glad to see from a lot of reports that he still holds those views. The problem is you know there's just not enough people around to to push them. And uh, he's just, you know, falling victim to this. Uh, 
Man, wow, there's so much more I could go over. We got to we got to make this a uh, a staple uh Farm Policy Friday. But where where could everyone follow your work? Where what, what's your Twitter handle again? Yeah, so Twitter first name Jordan, last name Shachtel, S C H A C H T E L. You can also email me at jordan at crtv.com and that's another great way to reach me. But yeah, I'm happy to talk to you as always and uh Daniel's podcast is doing great. You guys can subscribe to it via iTunes, and uh, it's it's always great to be on. It's always great to have a co-host, especially when I'm losing my voice here. Well, anyway, folks, that was my buddy Jordan Schachtel, one of the few sane voices on foreign policy that actually has affirmative beliefs, not defined by, oh, I'm not Ron Paul or I'm not Lindsey Graham. You know, we have our own views here. Uh, Also, I just want to plug, and I'm not getting paid to do this. I'm not getting asked to do this. But, you know, I talked about my whole um, Citizens Committee, Citizens Task Force, grassroots policymaking idea. There is, on a small level, one group is doing it, the Immigration Reform Law Institute, early. I used to do work with them when I was a tadpole last decade. They're the only immigration patriot lawyers that are fighting open borders in court. Um, You know, when all these communities that want to protect their sovereignty pass immigration ordinances and the, you know, ACLU comes in and bankrupts these small towns, they come in and help. They don't have the resources. As I said, we're outnumbered. So they're actually calling upon citizen lawyers to help them and just, you know, offer to help with litigation in their spare time. Attorneys United for a Secure America. It's AUSAmerica.org. Sign up if you are a young attorney, an old attorney, or anything in between, and have some spare time to do pro bono work to protect America's border. Uh, Attorneys United for Secure America. Look them up. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Thank you for a terrific week. Um, We are, this is probably our best week ever. Um, We got four podcasts out, uh, an array of diversified issues. Keep your thoughts coming. Again, you can email Jordan at Jordan at CRTV.com or dharwitz at CRTV.com. We'll put all our uh, Twitter links and, and, and show notes. Have a wonderful weekend. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.